Well, drowning, dismemberment, hell. It's going to be a good morning, isn't it? Pride. Pride always comes before a fall. And the higher you go, the harder you fall. And you can read with me now. And the harder... We haven't got it, have we? We're going to get it. I have. We're right on it. We're out on the first slide. It's great. Just a few technical... There we go. There we go. Are you going to read this with me? And the harder you fall, the higher you bounce. Well, our theme this morning is like children. And we're continuing with our series on Matthew's Gospel. But in some of the talks that I've been put down to to do, I've had my own little uh, mini-series running through. And you could, if you wanted to give that mini-series a title, it would be Expensive Talk Illustrations. Uh, Months ago, I, I shared about a parking ticket that I... Uh, incurred, and also about larvae, moth larvae infestation in a sitting room carpet. Well, about a year ago, my most expensive talk illustration to date happened. And I couldn't share that with you a year ago, because I hadn't got over it. A year has gone by, and I think I'm just about okay to talk about it. So, a year ago, I was tutoring uh, in Schiffnell, um, and I was on my way back home. It was about 6.30 in the evening, a wintry February evening. And I got stuck behind uh, a gritter. Sorry, that, I've, I've missed out a slide there. That's the like children. That's our theme this morning. I got stuck behind a gritter. And the gritter was doing what uh, gritters do. It was gritting. And I thought, well, I'm not going to drive all the way back to Bridge North with this thing spitting salt and debris all over my bodywork. I'll go home via Weak Bridge and Brosley. Some of you might know that particular route. So... Feeling uh, pleased with myself, I took the alternative route. I crossed Wheat Bridge. I made my way out of the Seven Valley and towards Brosley. Anyway, in the middle of a country lane before Brosley, a car ahead had his brake lights on. So he was obviously slowing down for some reason. In fact, he wasn't slowing down at all. 
He was stationary. It was dark. I applied my brakes some distance away, but nothing happened. Not even a hint of traction. It's amazing how quickly your mind can work in those situations. And I had a a leisurely conversation inside my head, which went something like this. I'm not going to be able to stop in time. I'm going to hit this thing. I was right. The parked vehicle in front gave me the traction I needed. (laughs) You feel awful in those situations, particularly when the person in the vehicle in front doesn't get out of their vehicle for several minutes. What have I done? Anyway, thankfully, a rather groggy uh, gentleman, um, a farm worker he was, driving a van, appeared, um, complaining of a little bit of soreness around the neck. But he was okay. And we were able to exchange contact details. Why had he stopped? He hadn't put his hazard warning lights on, I must say in my defense. Why had he stopped? He'd stopped because two cars had collided on black ice just ahead of him. The road had iced over and had become a skid pan. And just as we were finishing exchanging contact details, a gritter (laughs) came from Brosley direction, squeezing past the carnage of broken lights, smashed bumpers, and broken number plates. I managed to drive my car home that evening, but my bonnet was bent, my headlights were bent upwards, so on my way back I was blinding every other road user uh, back to Bridge North. That's not quite the end of the story. A few days later, excuse me, a few days later, the car, our car, was towed away from our drive for assessment. I didn't know that that was actually happening on that particular evening. I knew it might happen on that evening, but I'd been out working again. I was in Albrighton at the time, and I was making my way back home, and I got to the junction at Werfield, if you know that, on the Wolverhampton Road, And I had to wait at the junction as a pickup gracefully glided by with a car on the back, its lights flashing as if to say farewell. (laughs) That was the last I ever saw of that car. A car that had been lovingly tended by Dexter's That must be worth a bit of a discount. (laughs) Alas, it's no more. So what's all that about? Pride. And the disciples in our reading have been displaying pride. They've been asking Jesus, who is the greatest 
in the kingdom of heaven. And Matthew's account is quite kind to the disciples. If you look at Mark's account, there's a little bit more information. In Mark's account, the disciples had been arguing on the road as they traveled to Capernaum. And Jesus asked them, what are they arguing about? And they refused to tell him because they'd been arguing amongst themselves about who is the greatest. Were they embarrassed because they'd been arguing and they didn't want to let their master down? Probably. Were they embarrassed because in the presence of Jesus, such talk is instantly put into perspective as the trivial thing that it is? Possibly. But it's not the disciples who are the greatest, and it's not Muhammad Ali, though I wouldn't want to have faced him in the ring. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus. He is number one, not just for a short passage of time, but for eternity. Many years ago, um, I was working as a youth leader in a church in Sheffield, and and occasionally I I was invited along to, to meetings, to leaders' meetings. And I went to a particular leaders' meeting. Uh, I can't even remember what the theme was now. But the speaker uh, picked me and somebody else out, but he picked me out. He said, the gentleman in the blue shirt. It wasn't this particular shirt, I might add. It was a different shirt many years ago. And he picked me out, and he spoke a few words of prophecy over me. It's such a great gift, isn't it? The gift of prophecy. And it was lovely to to hear Ruth with that, exercising that gift of prophecy in our worship time. And we should encourage the use of prophecy. Because here's me years and years later referring to a prophetic word that I had that's still with me today. And this man said a number of things, but one thing in particular is relevant here. He said to me, you have run out of role models. Now, that might not sound particularly exciting, but for me, it marked a period in my life where as a Christian, my focus was no longer going to be on heroes, people I looked up to, whether worldly heroes or Christian heroes, but on Jesus He's your role model from now on. No one else. So it was a powerful word, and it, it moves me to think about it now. He, Jesus, is the one true role model. Every other human being will let you down. John gave the example of even Mary letting Jesus down earlier on by not knowing where he was. Every parent's nightmare. But Jesus will not let you down. He's faithful, dependable, true, rock solid. 
the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So the disciples had been thinking about their own glory. And they've momentarily lost sight of what really matters, which is putting Jesus first. Jesus has talked about glory, and this is what the disciples latch onto, but he's also talked more about his death and suffering. Today, we live in a world where we focus more on the reward than the sacrificial path that we must follow before we can get the reward. We focus on the reward more than the sacrificial path that we must follow before we can gain the reward. One uh, commentator puts it like this. The disciples look so much at the crown that they forget the yoke and the cross. And this can be said of us as well. So to explain all this, Jesus uses his visual um, aid in the form of a child. And he brings a child before the disciples as an illustration of how we should be thinking about the kingdom of heaven. And it's an upside down kingdom. Just looking around to see if anybody's bending their head round. No. Okay. It's an upside down kingdom. And Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 35, says, Whoever wants to be first must place himself last of all and be the servant of all. Topsy turvy kingdom. So the key to this kingdom isn't greatness, who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's not greatness, but humility. (coughs) T.S. Eliot wrote some poems called The Four Quartet, and one of those poems is called East Coker. And in the poem East Coker, he writes, humility is Endless. You simply can't get to the bottom of it. You can journey towards it, but you can never fathom the depths of humility. A friend of mine, when faced with troubles and difficulties, used the phrase, See in it, see in the circumstance or situation, a chance to die to self. See in your circumstances a chance to die to self. Each occasion that we die to ourselves, we're scratching on the surface of humility and we're humbling ourselves before God. Let's think about children in Jesus' time. They weren't highly rated members of society. They would have the least rights and privileges. 
Yet Jesus places one of these children center stage. I think one of the uh, accounts talks about the child being in the middle of them, in the midst. Center stage, it's a place of honor. And Jesus issues a direct challenge to the disciples. And just as a child is little in body and low in stature, so we must be little and low, humble, in spirit. And in how we see ourselves. Children, they have a simplicity about them, an innocence a trust. When my eldest son, Joel, was little, he overheard a conversation that Sheila and I were having about money. And we said that we obviously couldn't afford something. And he said, don't worry. Just go to the bank and get some more money out. A simplicity and a trust that children have. As adults, we're often the opposite. For simplicity, read complexity. We make things harder than they need to be. For innocence, read guilt worldliness for trust doubt though she looks okay to me she doesn't look too worried does she but that's what it's like isn't it it's where we are on the right hand side some of the time what Jesus is saying is can we switch the arrows and get back to being like little children. And Jesus is asking his disciples to change for a conversion to take place. For only then can we enter the kingdom of heaven. And the keys are grace and humility. That's the only way. And then we get the quite heavy bits, don't we, in the reading. And there are stark warnings to those who through sin caused the simplicity, the innocence, and the trust of little ones to falter for those who undermine the faith and therefore closeness to Jesus that little ones enjoy. That's the goal, childlike trust. When I was preparing this, a couple of questions came into my mind. Is a child's faith less important than your own? Is a person who's been a faithful Christian for over 40 years closer to Jesus than a child who has a growing faith, but an immature faith?
challenging. Verse 7, Jesus says, How terrible for the world that there are things that make people lose their faith. Such things will always happen. But how terrible for the one who causes them. And as I was preparing this, uh, started preparing it a couple, three weeks ago, there'd been lots in the news about child abuse amongst refugees coming from uh, Libya and about historic abuse cases in the UK of various um, kinds. Those words of Jesus, such things will always happen, ring true today. But Jesus wasn't talking out of bitterness. He's talking out of realism because he knows the secrets of men's hearts. And Jesus offers challenging advice, doesn't he, for anyone who sins in a way that causes you to lose faith. Of course, all sin undermines faith. But some sins, such as the ones which cause the young and the innocent to falter, have, in this reading, more serious consequences. When Jesus talks about if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, or your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, he's not actually talking about physical dismemberment But Jesus is giving a graphic, uncompromising picture of what will happen in the final judgment if we continue to entertain sin on one side and yet expect the crown of life on the other We're more than happy sometimes to live with that compromise, but Jesus is not. And Paul understood this battle between our bodies and our spirits probably better than, than most. And in Romans 8 verse 13, Paul writes, For if you live according to your human nature, you're going to die but if, you, if, but if by the Spirit you put to death your sinful actions, you will live. Three weeks ago, Sue Fensom encouraged us to guard what goes in and multiply what goes out. But it's hard to do. It's hard to guard what goes in. There are a multitude of easily accessible temptations out there. A former uh, vicar of mine, um, when preaching on sin, he's probably one of the only uh, speakers I've ever heard say, we sin because we enjoy it. It's actually fun, that's why we do it. And that's what he said. We sin basically because we enjoy it. Graham talked a lot about this last week. We're kind of wired into sin, our sinful natures. We're born into, through the fall, into sin. And we enjoy it. We don't accidentally or unfortunately fall into it, but we willfully 
entertain it. The Anglican uh, Confession has the line, through our own deliberate fault. That recognition that we have sinned through our own deliberate fault. And I remember also Graham a couple of years ago speaking um, about sin and sharing with us the line, exploring his sin options. I remember him using that line. And there's something delightful about that, isn't there? I'll explore my sin options. I'll just line them up and I'll go, which one shall I choose today? As though we kind of really enjoy picking our way through sin. Graham wasn't saying we should do that, by the way. He was talking about past events. Paul, in Romans um, 7, captures this battle that I mentioned earlier between our spirits wanting to do good and our bodies wanting to do bad. Verse 18 to 20. For even though the desire to do good is in me, I'm not able to do it. I don't do the good I want to do. Instead, I do the evil I do not want to do. And in verses 22 to 24. My inner being... Excuse me, I just lost it. My inner being delights in the law of God, but I see a different law at work in my body. A law that fights against the law which my mind approves of. It makes me a prisoner to the law of sin which is at work in my body. What an unhappy man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is taking me to death? Thanks be to God, who does this through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the good news. Jesus is the great rescuer who took upon himself your sin, my sin, the sin of the world, and paid that heavy price. The final section of our reading this morning directly measures the success of the disciples in putting Jesus' words about being humble like a child into action. And the disciples fail the test spectacularly by telling off the people for bringing children to Jesus for a blessing. Jesus, in turn, puts his disciples straight in verse 14. Let the children come to me and do not stop them because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Humility and grace are the keys to the kingdom. We will fall and we will make mistakes. But Jesus is there to rescue us, to pick us up. And it's never too late to be childlike. It's never too late in our lives to regain that simple Trust to move those arrows on that earlier slide 
away from adulthood, back to innocence, back to trust, back to simplicity. And so we need to be trusting like like the grandma in this story. And grandma sends a letter to her friend. Honk if you love Jesus. And she writes this. Dearest one, the other day I went to a local Christian bookstore and saw a Honk, if you love Jesus, bumper sticker. I was feeling particularly sassy that day because I'd just come from a thrilling choir practice followed by a powerful prayer meeting. So I bought the sticker and put it on my bumper. I was stopped at a red light at a busy intersection just lost in thought about the Lord and and how good he is, and I didn't notice that the light had changed. It's a good thing someone else loves Jesus, because if he hadn't honked, I'd never have noticed. I found lots of people who love Jesus. Why? While I was sitting there, the nice man behind started honking like crazy. And he leaned out of his window and screamed, for the love of God, go, go. What an exuberant cheerleader he was for the Lord. Everyone started honking. I just leaned out of my window and started waving and smiling at all these loving people. I even honked my horn a few times to share in the love. There must have been a man from Florida back there because I heard him yelling something about a sunny beach. I saw another man waving in a funny way with only his middle finger stuck up in the air. And when I asked my my teenage grandson in the back seat what that meant, he said that it was an Hawaiian good luck sign or something. (laughs) Well, I've, I've never met anyone from Hawaii, so I leaned out of the window and gave him the good luck sign back. My grandson burst out laughing. Why? Even he was enjoying the spiritual experience. A couple of people were so caught up in the joy of the moment that they got out of their cars and started walking towards me. I bet they wanted to pray or ask what church I attended. But this was when I noticed that the light had changed. So I waved to all my brothers and sisters, smiled at them all and drove on through the intersection. I noticed I was the only car that got through the intersection (laughs) before the light changed again. And I felt kind of sad that I had to leave them after all the love we'd shared. So I slowed the car down, leaned out of my window, and gave them all the Hawaiian good luck sign (laughs) one last time 
as I drove away. <laughs> Praise the Lord for such wonderful folks. Oh, sorry, I didn't realize I'd left that, um, left that one. Shall we pray? Lord, thank you for your word and thank you for your, your challenge to us that you want us to recognize that we are your children and to be like little children, accepting of you, Lord, and trusting of you and, and have that simplicity about you. Maybe not the naivety of that grandma, but the simplicity and trust, Lord. Just pray that in the coming days that you would uh, just remind us of, of your word and help us to, to do what you're telling us to do and to be simple, to be trusting and to be innocent like a little child. In Jesus' name, amen.